Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Amusing Jews, where we celebrate Jewish contributors and contributions to American popular culture. I'm Jonathan Friedman. And I'm Joey Agelfield. Producer and engineer Mike Tomrit is working somewhere behind the scenes. Amusing Jews is a project of Adad Chavarim, Congregation for Humanistic Judaism, the Cool Shul Jewish Cultural Community, and Atheists United Studios. Hey, Joey. There's a tired old adage, you are what you eat. It's tired and it's old, but it's also true. And not just in the usual meaning that it's important to watch what we eat to stay healthy. Food choices and the food cultures we inhabit are reflections and expressions of who we are. National Geographic considers food a key component of cultural identity, which they define as the shared characteristics of a group of people encompassing the place of birth, beliefs, language, social behaviors, arts, literature, music, and cuisine. For many Jews, including today's guest, cultural identity is synonymous with the Jewish deli. We're delighted to chat with illustrator, writer, and comics artist Ben Nadler. His books include Heretics, The Wondrous and Dangerous Beginnings of Modern Philosophy, The White Snake, and most recently, The Jewish Deli, an illustrated guide to the chosen food. Ben, welcome to Amusing Jews. Hey, nice intro. So your illustrated books range in subject matter from fairy tales to the history of philosophy and Jewish food culture. How do you go about choosing topics to write and draw about? It's really hard to get books published. I feel like the books I've published are a result of me throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall and then like once in a while something sticks and then that becomes the next um, um, like weapon in my arsenal. I don't know. I feel less like I'm choosing to make these books and more just like the books uh, just like materialized because something circumstantial happened that kept the project going instead of um, flatlining like it also often does. So what are some of the other projects that you wish you might have done or the, some of the spaghetti you threw at the wall? Well, I feel like, well, it's so much easier to come up with ideas for books than it is to make a book. So it's like, um, I- I'm always like, like there's a lot of fiction like swirling around in my brain, but also like I was always going to do a, a food book. Like there was going to be a food book that I had to get out of my system uh, just because like maybe it's just like part of my machinery that's like now I can put that to rest and move on to whatever is like occupying my 
brain, which is like, you know, it's like, oh, like I love deli food and I love like horror movies. So like, let's just like, let's focus on the deli food. Like, let's get the book out. Like, let's move on. The fairytale book happened because the publisher I was talking to suggested I would be good at adapting something like a fairy tale. So I went through like old Grimm's fairy tales that I hadn't seen adapted so much. So you like horror and you like delis. How about the movie Delicatessen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love that movie. <laughs> I thought so. So the term the term deli Jew is sometimes used in a derogatory way, implying that the person is somehow superficially Jewish because their sacred place is the delicatessen rather than the synagogue. Yet, as you write in the introduction to your book on the Jewish deli, there is something quite powerful, immediate, and perhaps even spiritual about connecting to one's heritage through ancestral food. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I don't, I hadn't heard that uh, phrase before. I, you know, I think it's just inherently being part of like an ethno religion, right? Like, I'm not spiritual or religious. Um, neither was my family. Like, I haven't really been in temple since my bar mitzvah, but there's something that grounds us still in our Judaism. And it's like, it's the culture, it's the food. I feel like I feel more connected to my Judaism than I ever have now living in New York. Now that I live here and now the food is part of the culture that is like my daily life, I feel like I feel like I know more about who I am as a Jew, especially if I'm in a deli and I'm taking my friends to the delis and I'm showing them like the food that speaks to me that, you know, uh, like was taught to me from my father and then his father. And that's religion in a way, right? Uh, I mean, like I can't speak to religion really, but like there's something very religious about that inheritance. So in a similar vein, you have a great section in the deli book describing the difference between kosher and kosher style. Could you give us a little overview of the distinctions and why kosher style came about? Yeah, the phrasing of those things is confusing because the laws of kosher are so vast and often like so like all over the place that it's that even that is hard to follow. But you have glad kosher delis, which you almost never see, which are the strictest, which just means they have somebody on staff full time who's inspecting the food and making sure everything is up to code. And then you have kosher delis, which just means someone is popping in once in a while to make sure that you know the laws of kosher are being followed. But then a kosher style deli is not very concerned with the rules of kosher. It's really just a deli in the style of a deli that you might imagine it, but it's not kosher. It's serving dairy in the same place. It's putting cheese on the sandwiches. It's catering to, you know, contemporary American consumers, which is basically what 99% of people think of when they think of going to a deli, I assume, especially if you're not Jewish. Right. And that sort of reminds me of a part in your book where you're talking about kosher pickles. And really that just means Jewish pickles or pickles that you might find served in a in a Jewish establishment or with Jewish other foods, right? Yeah, because uh, like sometimes kosher means like circumstantially kosher. And I could be getting that wrong because I don't feel like I am an expert in what makes something kosher because I tried to research it and it can be very confusing. But it's like you can't when when it's when it's when there are laws that that have originated from like the Bible, you can't categorize every single food item. 
So you have to use like context. Yeah, I think it's probably, uh, you know, more appropriate to call them kosher pickles than Jewish pickles, because that might sort of connote other things like a Jewish pickle. That doesn't hit the ear, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't. And I can think of a lot of jokes about, uh, oh, you know, pickles yeah, and, yeah. and Jewish. And is this a circumcised pickle? Anyway, you get the yeah. idea. So uh, food, as we're kind of talking about, is both universal and particular. And you write that in in Europe, delis weren't originally Jewish and that in America, they catered to the tastes of different immigrant populations, such as corned beef for people from Ireland. And you also trace the various deli foods, different parts of Europe and elsewhere. Uh, for instance, you talk about how every culture has its version of a knish. There's the Spanish empanadas and the Indian samosas and the Jamaican patties and Chinese dumplings and all of that. So I guess one of the questions that I was thinking about reading the book was, do you think that food and maybe deli food in particular can teach us something about our shared humanity? I mean, yeah, that's a big question. Part of what makes, I think, Jewish food so special is that it's a food, um, you know, that originated with the lower class and lower classes, closer neighbors, meaning, you know, they're put in close quarters with other cultures because um, they're immigrants and they're melting uh, together. I mean, so like... The reason corned beef exists in Jewish delis is because we lived on the same streets as the Irish immigrants. And I think you can follow that kind of relationship even before immigration, like back to Eastern Europe, like dough has always been cheap to make and the filling can be whatever it is. So that's always been like a simple lower class food. And in that way, it's so universal because every culture has people without a lot of money that need to be resourceful. And I think that's why like I mean, that can extend so far. That's why things are pickled. So, you know, they last longer, so they're preserved. All in the matter of, like, taking cheaper cuts of meat, cheaper, like, fish parts, people that, like, upper class, you know, consumers don't want, uh, and finding ways to make the best out of them. So I think in that way, it speaks to all of humanity, because at least one thing every culture has in common is that there are uh, class disparities. Yes, the people's food, right? Yeah. Yeah, and not to get not to get too heady about it, but um that's like part of what makes I think deli food today still so important is because that's like one of like the few ways you have of tracing it back to a people that have historically been like wiped out or on the run. And you can say that about a lot of different cultures. So you have a charming illustration about the origins of babka, sweet braided bread. Uh would you share that story with our audience? Sweet braided bread. Oh, the story of babka um, uh, made out of uh, leftover challah scraps by grandmother. Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah, because it, it shares that etymology with uh, Bubby. Um, so, uh, yeah, early 19th century, you know, like Jewish grandmas would say, you know, it's like that's the thing about, you know, like taking your like, you know, your cheap food and stretching them out is like you have leftover braids of dough from the challah so you can twist it up and um and sugar and basically and then now you have dessert now you have babka yeah my wife uh, found this terrific recipe for vegan babka she made it for us last week um you know for the first time and 
I, I made a declaration around the dinner table that we have a new tradition in our house. Every week we're going to have this babka. <laughs> yeah, babka is um, babka is underrated as a dessert in general. It's kind of the best. I agree. It's like uh, if you like challah, you're going to love this. And it's like uh, I once had a, a student who referred to donuts as candy bagels. And it's kind of the same thing. Like you take challah, which, you know, it's it's delicious in its own way, but then you kind of spruce it kinda up. already kind of sweet. Yeah, but now yeah. you you amp it up and you make it, like you said, probably the best kept uh, secret if it is a secret. I love babka so much. I, differ, I like comparing different babkas because that's like so much variation. So one of the things you allude to in the book, which I had never really thought about before, is the idea of deli as fast food. The food was preserved, ready to go, could be eaten on the run, and was cheap, at least in those early days. And you have a customer saying, I'm starving, I got to get going. And the deli man replying, here, take some pastrami on rye bread. You can eat it with your hands. So in your view, uh, can we make a direct connection between delis of the turn of last century and perhaps the fast food of today? Yeah, um, that's a really interesting comparison. You know, before Jews were like running delis on the Lower East Side, they were on the street pushing their food in carts, um, herring, knisses, and, and sausages. It literally was exclusively street food um, because, you know, no one's owning brick and mortar stores. Also, like at, at the turn of the century, you're looking at like a more industrialized, bustling New York that is like needs something to eat. Uh, quickly on the go and i feel like i don't know a lot about the history of fast food but I, I think about the history of fast food as like expanding in like like post-war suburbia where like suddenly people can't be bothered as much to like cook in their homes because they have too much to do <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i feel like uh like a store a better historic can make a, a, a better connection than i could but there's something to it yeah, I think just the idea of food that you can eat on the run that's sort of pre-prepared in some way, um, you know, that's something that, that definitely spoke to me when I was reading that section of the book. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's also like sort of like frustrating about seeing the places that are serving like the $30 hot dog, you know, with like with like the liver pate. I was like, that's fine. It's like a good hot dog, but like, it's so antithetical to the history of a hot dog. You know, it almost like hurts my feelings a little bit. I know. And I don't know if you have an answer to this, but I've been curious, like when did delis become expensive? God, I mean, everything is, yeah, I, I, it's true. Like it, like when you go to Katz's, you're spending $30 on a pastrami sandwich. And it, it, in their defense, like they give you a lot of meat and it's like the best pastrami you can find. So I, I do get it, but... um. It is a little horrifying how inflation is affecting everything and especially like the cultures that like are supposed to be um, for people with less money. I don't know. You described the Reuben sandwich, uh, which has cheese, mayonnaise and corned beef as neither kosher nor European, but rather as a symbol of adaptation. Uh, could you elaborate? Yeah, Reuben's uh, like obviously not kosher, but... Um, Americans love their cheese and dairy and mayo. And um, if you want to keep a business afloat, you got to give the people what they want. It's just supply and demand. Um, 
So to me, that's the perfect example of like how delis have been able, you know, since the beginning have been about adapting, have been about, you know, poor people adapting with what they had with cheaper cuts of meat, with preserving their food as long as possible. And now adapting to keep their businesses afloat. And um, it's just a matter of coming into this new American culture, finding out what works and uh, going with the flow. And if you got to put cheese on your sandwich to keep, keep people coming in, you got to do it. Um, and by the way, like worst case scenario, you have like the best sandwich of all time. So it's not such a big deal. You had told us before we started the interview that you're coming to us from Brooklyn. What are your go-to deli spots? Because uh, we imagine you probably like a deli or two. I definitely like a deli or two or three. Um, I really like to go to uh, Barney Greengrass on the west side. Is a place that I've been going to all my life. And I think it gets the, it's so, there's something about the way it looks inside that has always like stuck in my in my like creative threads a little bit and also it has like the best fish uh you can buy but also cats is and daughters they're touristy they're still great places to go yeah i liked in the book where you were describing how visual the deli is and how it warrants uh, you know a graphic uh approach that you gave to it i think you're right like sometimes we go to delis because they look like a deli or they look kind of rich in history Maybe they don't have the best matzo ball soup, but that's okay because you're paying for the experience, right? Yeah, it just feels good and weird to be in the place like that. And it is so much about the whole experience and not just really how the food tastes. Although the food's usually pretty good. But yeah, you know, like the stacks of like the cans and the tins and the like barrels of dried fruit or whatever. And also often like the colors are of the walls and like the neon lights are very strange too. It's kind of like a, yeah, it's a dreamy feeling, I think, being in an old deli delis really aren't as popular as they once were there are a lot of reasons for that uh health concerns perhaps uh, modifying people's personal eating habits and just the the competition with cheaper faster food etc but uh many that are still around are quite successful even out here in the la area and others have modified their menus to stay open and stay relevant with fusion foods and so forth so what do you think is the future of delicatessens in America? Uh, when I talked to, I talked to a lot of deli owners when I was researching the book and nobody seemed too cynical about the future people. Many owners were just, you know, putting burgers and beer on their menu as a way of like keeping young people coming in, which by the way is like just another version of what delis have always been doing. Um, so I feel like there's no real reason to like thumb your nose at like breaking you know it's like oh they're turning our delis into bars but it's just like that's just it's just a new version of the Ruben um but and I see a lot of like incredible younger chefs uh like you said like incorporating the fusion from like the other cultures there around the like Japanese and Korean immigrants that like they've been growing up with are now like a part of their culinary language these places still exist and they're still really good and they could use some help in general um because it's hard to run and operate any restaurant these days much less you know some of these institutions have been going on for over a century so they feel like um that places we need to pay attention to and preserve if we can yeah and for our viewers i'm going to share some of these fusion foods that you illustrated in the book there's the um Matzo ball ramen. Yeah, Shalom Japan. 
Yeah, a smoked salmon quesadilla down here. Yeah. This is your pastrami and kimchi sandwich. Latka waffles. So like, I guess, hash browns and and waffles put together. Yeah, you, know, you take your latka batter, put it in the waffle iron. Yeah. Artisanal gefilte fish. Somebody trying to make gefilte fish more palatable, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might love gefilte fish more than anybody. <laughs> They're like pickled fish nuggets. Well, Ben, it's been great having you on our show. Yeah, thank you guys. And to our audience, now back to your regularly scheduled lives. Amusing Jews is here to amuse you. If you like being amused, go ahead and click like and subscribe.